I will be reading Leviticus 20, verses 22 through 26. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. And you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. We will never be the people that we ought to be unless we understand God in the proper context of who he is. We're never going to live a life that's full of holiness unless we understand why God commands us to be holy just like he is holy. And brothers and sisters, when we talk about being Christians and when we talk about living holy lives, we're doing so not because, just because God commands us, but in everything that he commands us, he wants us to do those things because that's what he is. That's who he is. That's him in his very nature to say, because I am holy, I want you to be holy. As he gives the law there in Exodus chapter 20 to the people of God, and they had, uh, they had already accepted the covenant, God said, if you follow me, if you listen to my words, I'm going to make you a special people, a people above all the nations, a treasure of, of mine. I'm going to make you this peculiar people, this holy priesthood, as Peter would reference in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. And God telling these people, I'm going to make you special to me. The people said, yes, we want that. And then in Exodus chapter 20, the passage Kevin read for us just a few moments ago, begin what we know as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. The top ten rules, if you will, of God saying, this is what it means to be my people. This is what it means to follow me faithfully. And as God gave them those things, he wanted them to understand something about his nature, but especially about how they responded to him as a people that were trying to be holy, just like God is holy. Brothers and sisters, we're never going to be the people God wants us to be if we don't understand the holy God that he is. And so we want to spend some time this morning talking about our holy God. The word holy just simply means separate. It simply means set apart. It's different for a particular purpose than everything else that we've been given. You may look on the cover of your Bible, hopefully that you've got sitting open in front of you. Don't have that if you've got an electronic Bible, but you understand. And generally, on the front, you're going to have something that says, the Holy Bible. What does that mean? Book, the word Bible just simply means book, biblia in Greek. And the word holy modifies that to say, this is a book unlike any other book. This is a purpose that this document has been given so that you can understand what it means to be separate or set apart. And in the Holy Bible, the set-apart book, you read about a holy God, a set-apart God, a God that's different than the nature of this earth and all that's in it, is different because he's superior to and before it, and he will exist long after it because he is eternal. He's separate from anything else that we know. 
What does it mean that our God is a holy God? Because we're never going to be the people God wants us to be until we understand the type of God that he is. I've got six things for us to consider this morning about God's holiness. And I hope that you'll have a sheet of paper or something to jot down because, folks, if there's one Bible concept that we need to get, it's this. Because if we don't get it, we're never going to behave in the right ways towards God. We're never going to think of God in the right ways. And we're going to continue going on with unholy thoughts and unholy processes because we haven't really given proper regard to who he is and what he's commanded us to be. Let's look at these together because we want to understand more about God. That's why we're here this morning. We want to understand more about the people that he wants us to be because that's why we're here this morning. Let's look at these six things together. We're going to fly, and so I will make this PowerPoint available to anybody that wants it, but realize that we've got to move relatively quickly. Number one, God's holiness is completely a description of his nature. If I were just to ask you this morning to give me some characteristics about God, what is God like? You would absolutely talk about his wisdom, Romans chapter 11 and verse 33. You would talk about his justice, about how he's just, Genesis chapter 18 and other passages, about how he's righteous, like what we talked about this morning with the righteous judge and the unrighteous judge there in Luke chapter 18. He's just, he's, he's good, he's gracious, he's forgiving, he's love, and he's long-suffering. You know that God's not going to lie, Titus chapter 1 verse 2, that means he's trustworthy, God is truth personified. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 17. God is pure, like what we sang about just a little while ago. Those are absolute characteristics of God. However, as we continue to press and I say, give me some more characteristics of God, there are some other things that we might be reticent to say. Some things that may not sit well with us when we think about the loving God that's given us Jesus Christ. The Bible describes him as a consuming fire, Hebrews chapter 12. The Bible describes God as a wrathful God. God is angry with the wicked every day. That God is, 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 is somebody that's got to punish the wicked. I don't want to think about a God like that. I'd much rather think about those characteristics in white than to think about God being all those things and then describing him, as Exodus chapter 20 does, as a jealous God. How is God a jealous God? And you look and you say, how in the world can we take all of these good characteristics of God, his, his love and his purity and his justice and his, and his kindness, and couple those things with his, his punishment of the wicked and his anger towards sin and all of those things that we don't really want to talk a whole lot about? And the answer is that we characterize it because they all fall under the umbrella of God's holiness. Holiness couples God's goodness, God's love, his peace, his joy, all of those things that are characteristics in a biography of him uh, from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is. That's who God is, all of those things. But it also couples them with all the things we don't much want to talk about in his wrath and his punishment of sin and the sending people to hell, as it were. How do we characterize God and how do we, how do we join these two natures together? And the answer is, it's because of his holiness. You see, because he's holy, he has to punish sin. Because he's holy, he wants to be a loving God. First John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. 
But understanding who he is means we have to find a blanket term, something that's going to describe him. And do you realize holiness is the only aspect of God that's ever three-peated? Isaiah chapter 6, those seraphim flying around the throne cry out, holy, holy, holy. They're not crying out, love, love, love. Or wrath, wrath, wrath. But what they're crying out is something that encompasses everything that he is because all of his attributes, every single part of his nature can be summed up in a single word, holy. Look at this number two. Everything that God touches becomes holy. Everything that's associated with him is holy. Let me give you just a few. I've mentioned before King Midas. You remember King Midas? And how he wanted so badly to have everything that he touched turned to gold. And and Midas began to go around touching things. And it ended up in that that story that that Midas ended up touching his daughter and, and realizing that she had turned to gold. Wasn't exactly the gift that he wanted. I understand that, the golden touch. But I want you to think about God with regard to the holy touch. That everything God is going to put his stamp of approval on, everything that God is going to touch, is going to become holy. And it's not like Midas, because Midas on his inside wasn't pure gold. But God being pure holiness is everything that he touches and everything that's going to be associated with him has got to be holy as well. Otherwise, it can't be associated with God. And so we talk about things like his holy name. Holy is his name. We read about that just a few moments ago from Exodus chapter 20. His holy angels, they're in his presence, therefore they're associated with him and they're separate. They're set apart just like he is. His holy temple, when God put his stamp and a seal of approval upon the tabernacle and then later the temple, that building began to be separate. It became something that was set apart for a particular purpose. And Habakkuk, noting God, being just and God being wise, especially using an uh, uh, immoral nation to try and punish people that were less wicked than they. Habakkuk looks at this and says, how in the world is this going to happen? And then he comes to the conclusion in Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Holy speech, his holy tabernacle, his holy promises, his holy city, Jerusalem, his holy angels and holy uh, apostles and prophets. You know, the church is called holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone defiles the temple of God, him will God destroy because the temple of God is holy. Which temple, good East Texan, y'all are. Why? Why does God want us to be Holy. Because if he's going to touch us with his grace, if he's going to put his approval on us, we've got to become people like he is. We're never going to be the people that we ought to be if we don't understand the way that God ought to be. Look at this, number three. All heaven is concerned about the holiness of God. You ever thought about that? What is heaven really concerned about? What does heaven really want to understand and want to know? I can go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. And you remember in Genesis chapter 3 that mankind sinned. They did what was wrong in God's sight. Adam and Eve partook of that fruit. And one of the consequences was that that man and woman had to be cast out of the garden because God denied them access to the tree of life. That's an act of mercy and an act of love. 
Because can you imagine a sinful man then having an access to something that's going to cause him to live forever? We create enough problems with 70 or 80 years while we're here on this earth. Can you imagine if we were able to live perpetually what kind of shape the earth would be in? But as God cast out man out of the Garden of Eden, you remember what he put right there in front of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or sorry, the tree of life, so that man couldn't have access to it? He put a cherubim. He put an angel there with a flaming sword of fire so that that would guard the way to the tree of life. Why? Because God is separate. God is holy. And as long as mankind and womankind had existed there in the garden without transgressing his commandment, they were holy just like he was holy. They had access to all the good things that God had, but just as soon as they partook of that tree, they were denied access to the tree of life. When God commanded the plans for the tabernacle to be built, Exodus 25 verse 8 said that he wanted a place where he could dwell among his people. And he wouldn't dwell among a people that weren't holy, but he wanted to have a place right in the middle of the camp that all the people could come and they could offer sacrifices for their sins. They could make it at one moment, atonement for, for, for uh, what they'd done wrong. And God said, here's what I want on my plans for my house. I want a separation between the holy place and the most holy place. And I want you to put on that veil tabernacle two angels two cherubim with their wings outstretched as if to say do not come in here you have no right to come beyond this veil and in fact if beyond the veil as the cherubim said no access you remember that on the ark of the covenant in the most holy place there were two angels that were sitting on the mercy seat with their wings outstretched and their head bowed and the glory of God sat right there in between them that's where the high priest came on the Day of Atonement to make at one for the people. One man, one time a year. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But as we look at God's holiness, you find that as the king Uzziah died there in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees a grand vision, throne room vision of God. And you remember, as we mentioned just a moment ago, you've got those winged creatures that look a whole lot like cherubim, but they're called seraphim. And they're flying around with two wings. They're flying with two wings. They're covering their head and the two wings. They're covering their feet. But they're crying out about the holiness of God. And Isaiah realizes something about himself. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I have no right to be in the holy presence of God. You move along further in Scripture. Book of Ezekiel, you see this picture of these cherubim. And it's an amazing thing because Ezekiel can't find, it seems, almost the, the, the picture of what these things are. And so he uses the term like and as, similes, to try and describe what he sees. And he sees these beings that are cherubim, but he sees them in a fearful and a fiery judgment scene as God's glory is departing from Jerusalem because of the people's wickedness. God says, I'm not going to dwell with these people anymore. But in the book of Ezekiel, you find the cherubim being creatures of... God's wrath and God's justice, but they're concerned about his holiness. What's interesting is, is that when you get to Revelation and you look in the throne room of God once again, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, you see these creatures once again that look a whole lot like what Ezekiel describes as cherubim. But you know what they're doing? They're gathered still in the holy presence of God, but they're bowing down with people. 
because they're crying out about God and his salvation and his justice because of what he's done through Jesus Christ. And now, instead of denying access, instead of saying, you have no right to come in here because of Jesus and his redemptive work, they're saying, let's bow down together. Everything in heaven is concerned about God's holiness and keeping him as a holy God because that's who he is. Who ought we to be as his people? Note this, number four. Men must respect his holiness. Consider just for a few moments what happened when men came into the presence of God and realized his holiness. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5 is the first time the word holy is used in the entire scripture. Moses out there in the wilderness of Midian, for 40 years he's keeping his father-in-law's sheep. And he comes across this mountain and upon this mountain he sees this bush that's burning with fire but it's not consumed. And Moses says, I'm going to go and I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight. And as he gets near, you remember what the cry was of the angel of the Lord Moses, take off your shoes, for you are standing on holy ground. Why? Because the presence of the Lord is there, and whatever he touches, whatever he associates with himself, is holy. You remember what Moses did? Moses pulled a veil over his face. He recognized there was something different, something separate about this place and this occasion. Exodus chapter 19 and uh, Exodus chapter 20 What God commanded of the people of Israel after they had accepted the covenant, God said, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to separate yourselves. I want you to take a bath. I want you to cleanse your bodies. I want you to to, to take a fast for three days. We're going to separate ourselves for three days, and I want you to take a look at this mountain, the mountain of the Lord, Sinai, and I want you to keep separate from that mountain. God's glory is going to descend upon this mountain. And as it descends, what's going to happen is, if you have any beast, if you have any man that goes and tries to touch that mountain while God's glory is resting on it, he says you're going to shoot him with an arrow. You're going to kill him. Why? Because he didn't want to compromise his holiness by having a sinful man approach where he was not wanted, where he was not able to go, where he didn't have access. Let me say it like that. And as God began to speak from that holy mountain... The ground shook, the sky shook, and the people listened to the voice of God. And as they listened to the voice of God, they said, Moses, we don't want to hear anymore. Tell God that he can talk to you, and then you can come and tell us, because we can't stand it when God speaks to us. Can you imagine the image that that was burned into their minds? And how that should have affected them and their view of God and his power, his raw power that was put on display over the gods of Egypt, little g of gods. Numbers chapter 22, verse 31, Balaam's donkey. Balaam's on his way to go and curse the children of Israel. Remember, God said, you're my holy people, I'm going to protect you. And Balaam is on his way, and, and he had gone presumptuously with the servants of Balak, the king. And as Balaam is on his way, his donkey sees something that he doesn't. And the donkey is trying to move out of the way to the point where Balaam tries to get him back on course, and he doesn't go. But You know what he saw? It's what Balaam saw a little while later. The angel of the Lord with his sword outstretched, ready to strike down Balaam because of his disobedience. And the donkey was trying to protect him. Can you imagine Balaam going before Balak and Balak saying, Balaam, where you been? I'm ready for you to curse these Israelites that are coming into our land. Balaam, don't you know that I'm able to honor you and able to glorify you and able to lift you up and give you all kinds of riches? And I imagine Balaam having burned in his image 
that angel of the Lord with the sword outstretched. What he couldn't see that he was privileged to be able to see, he had a good view and a good picture of God's holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, we mentioned just a few moments ago about Isaiah going into the throne room of God in this vision. And one of the angels having to come and touch his mouth and his lips with a coal and taking away his sin. Balaam recognized, sorry, Isaiah recognized that he couldn't dwell in the presence of God the way that he ought to. Peter, when Jesus went out in Luke chapter 5 and got in his boat and cast out, they had fished all night but caught no fishes. But at the Lord's word, he said, cast your nets down for a catch. And Peter said, listen, that's the way it's been. We've fished all night. We haven't caught anything. But at your word, we'll obey. And he did. And they, needed so much, they had so many fish that they needed another boat to come and help them. What was Peter's reaction on that occasion? He went in his boat. He fell down on his knees and said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter understood something about the holiness of God. And about his relationship to him. And in Revelation chapter 1, when John receives the revelation from Jesus, you find again, kind of like uh, the book of Ezekiel, that John can't quite capture exactly what he sees. And so he says his hair is like white, like, like wool. And he's got uh, eyes like fire. And as John sees this vision of Jesus in his glorified state, John's reaction is to fall down on his face as a dead man. Folks, there's a sense in which we come into worship and we ought to be on our faces because of the holiness of God. And I'm not talking about literally. I'm not talking about eating this, this, this carpet down here. I'm talking about us and our humility and recognizing the fact that a holy God has commanded his holy people to come into his holy presence and to offer him the worship in the beauty of holiness. And we have that privilege, that honor, that, that responsibility and if we don't have a lofty view of God sitting up high in his holiness like, uh, like Isaiah chapter 6, then we are not going to offer him to worship that he is so richly due. Said again, we will never be the people that we ought to be if we don't understand the holiness of God and who he is. Look at this number five. It's amazing. It's awesome. It's powerful the fact that he allows us into his holy presence. This is a model, if you will, a sketch of the tabernacle and the temple later on. And as you would come into the tabernacle, the place of worship in the Old Testament, you would come in by the east gate. And as you would be there, a priest would meet you at the altar of burnt offering. That's this big red square. And seldom, if you were just the average Israelite, you wouldn't get beyond that. You would come in and the priest would take his hands and lay them on the, the sacrifice and then cut the bull's throat or the, the goat's throat or the, the sheep's throat rather. And he would catch the blood and he would put the blood on the corners of the altar. And then he would, he would uh, disembowel this animal and he would sacrifice this animal so that you could have, well, whatever you needed. Sometimes there were peace offerings. Sometimes there were sin offerings, transgression offerings. You read the book of Leviticus. We're going to do a study of that a little bit later in the summer. But what he's trying to do is look at these things and, and, and offer atonement on behalf of that. But if you were just the average Israelite, you couldn't go beyond that altar burnt offering. As the priests had access to this place, which is the holy place of the temple or the tabernacle. You remember there were three elements. There was the menorah, the lampstand. There was the table of showbread, representing the 12 tribes of Israel that uh, had bread on them that were changed out. Uh, and then you have the altar of incense. 
If you were a priest of the tribe of Levi, coming from the line of Aaron, you were allowed access in here, but you would have to wash first before you came into the holy place. That was what this bronze laver was for. But if you were just an average priest, you could not go any further than the holy place. And once again, this veil had the cherubim on it that said, no access, you do not belong here. This is restricted. And that was restricted for one man for one time of year. The high priest of the line of Aaron, whoever was high priest, had the responsibility one time a year to come in here with the blood of a goat and to sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. And as he would do that, he would make atonement for the people for that year. But you remember the old tradition. They said that if the high priest went in here and messed up something, Supposing he didn't offer exactly like he ought to and God struck him dead. Why would God do that? It's because he's holy and he wanted men to respect his holiness. As he would offer that, if he had God struck him dead in the middle of the holy place, they would have a rope tied around his leg so that they could just drag him out because there was still nobody that was allowed to go into the most holy place. The beautiful part of this and the amazing part of this is that when you open up to the book of Hebrews... What Hebrews is going to teach us about God and about his nature is powerful in thinking about this. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 says, we have access to the very throne of God. He says, having boldness to enter the most holy place, this place that was reserved for one time a year for one man. We have boldness to enter into that which was reserved for that man. We brethren enter, verse 22, he says, let's draw near to the throne of God having a true heart and full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. God says we are holy ones. We can enter the most holy place, the very presence of God. We mentioned a Bible class this morning talking about our high priest who blazed the trail, who removed the separation for us. And he says, let's therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. That's a metaphor for the Ark of the Covenant, for the place where God's mercy rests. Let's come boldly before the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Jesus blazed that trail for us so that it's not one man for one time a year, but it's we as New Testament priests, holy ones. We can come anytime we want before the throne of God. We need to have at first an understanding, folks, of who God is before we really begin to talk about ourselves as his priests. New Testament priests a holy nation, a royal priesthood, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, because that's what he's made us. He allows us into his holy presence. But the last one we want to talk about this evening, or this morning rather, is this. It's amazing, it's awesome, it's powerful that he has given us the responsibility and the task of showing his holiness to an unholy world. To showing his holiness to an unholy world. We are not going to be impressed with the command, be holy, until we really understand something about the God who's made us holy. You know why we talk about things like gossip? Why we spend time talking about things like modesty? 
Why we spend time talking about things with respect to our attitude towards alcohol or t- attitudes towards lust or attitudes towards uh, things that, uh, that, that are of the world, that are in the world. Things like dancing, things like uh, why, we, why we don't conduct ourselves in, in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, Ephesians chapter 4 about why we shouldn't do certain things and why we should do other things. Why do we spend time talking about those things? Folks, the reason, the base reason, the one reason why we want to do that, why we don't conduct ourselves whenever we talk about uh, marriage, about how people shack up today and how they live together for a period of time or how they view sexuality so, so, so blasé, like it doesn't really matter. You want to go and you want to have a a sexual relationship with this person, that's great. Then go have a sexual relationship with that person, that's great. Why is it that Christians are called to a higher standard? And why is it that we behave differently? It's because our God calls us to be holy like he is holy. You know what that means? That means just like he is set apart from this world so also we are set apart from this world. We cannot have the same values as this world and hold up the things that this world holds up and expect that God is going to be pleased with us as his holy people. And as we stand where God stands, as we worship in the beauty of holiness, as we conduct ourselves in pure lives, crying out like we sang this morning, I hope that you were praying it, pure in heart, O God, help me to be. May I devote my will wholly to thee. Watch thou my wayward feet, guide me with counsel sweet. Pure in heart, O God, help me to be. And as we cried out about the holiness of God, holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God over all, And blessed eternally, we have a view of ourselves to say, I'm not what I ought to be. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, but make me holy, more holy, just like you're holy. Folks, we're never going to be the people that we ought to be as God's people if we don't have a view, a right view of God and his holiness. We're going to spend some time over the next several weeks, maybe on into a month, I don't know, because we've got camp coming up and several other things, talking about what it means to be holy as God is holy. And I hope that you're thinking about that, and I hope that you'll pray, more holiness give me, like we sang this morning. Because folks, God wants us that way. We can't hold up the values of the world and expect that we're going to be the people he wants us to be. But I'm thankful so much That a holy God that calls me to holiness is also merciful to me in his holiness. That the blood of his son Jesus washes me and cleanses me from the sins that I commit, sometimes willfully, sometimes unintentionally, but always because I'm dwelling in the body and have a fleshly nature and a spiritual nature, I don't always do the things that I want to do, and I don't always do the things that I know that he's pleased with as a holy God. But our lives are caught up in taking our lives and saying, I'm separate from this world. I'm in the world, but not of the world, as Jesus would say to his disciples there in John chapter 15. Does that describe you? It does. Whether or not we're living like that is really a question each one of us have to ask. So the question is this morning, are you holy like he's holy? Are you impressed with the holiness of God? I hope 
I pray that that's the purpose or the, the result of this lesson. But I know that we can all do better. I know that we can all conform our lives more like Jesus. Because when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about Christ-likeness and we're talking about holiness the way that he's holy. Do you need him this morning? Maybe there's somebody here who's ready to obey the gospel. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who's ready to confess and to say, I need help because I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what God wants me to be. We stand ready to help, to encourage, to uplift, to pray, to study, whatever your need may be. We'd love to be able to help you as we stand and sing our invitation song.